Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. On December 2nd, 1983, Trey, Mike, John, and Jeff Holdsworth played their first live gig together at UVM's Harris Mills Cafeteria. It was a strange night. The first set included songs like Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress, Proud Mary, and Squeezebox. After set one, the DJ played Michael Jackson and Trey drummed along to the album. The band got in a Scarlet Begonias into Fire on the Mountain, and then the house music came back on, and more Michael Jackson was turned up to drown out the band. They didn't stop there, of course. They kept going. And going. And they're still going. On New Year's Eve 2013, as an homage to how far they've come, they used hockey sticks as mic stands, just as they did on that night in 1983. But this time, instead of being drowned out by Michael Jackson, they played a retrospective set using their original instruments and equipment on top of one of their old tour trucks in the very center of a packed Madison Square Garden. In episode two of Undermine, we're going to go deep into some of the early shows of the 1980s, specifically the shows from 1983 to 1986, to begin to chart the path from Harris Mills Cafeteria 
to Madison Square Garden and beyond. We'll dive in after a word from our sponsors. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about one of our great partners, DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. If you're a musician and looking to get your music out there, DistroKid is the way to go. DistroKid is available for iOS and Android and is now available in Apple's App Store and the Google Play Store. More than a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all other major streaming services. And with DistroKid, you can upload new releases, see your financial progress, get notified when you've earned royalties, withdraw money from the app, view and share links, check your streaming stats, and a whole lot more. DistroKid has more features than any other music distributor. Check them out today. Go to distrokid.com, that's distrokid with a capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine for a special offer only for our listeners. That's distrokid, capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine. Thanks, distrokid. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little... A little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics... Um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. Early shows at Nectar's, Doolin's, Hunt's, Goddard College, The Ranch, and many others strengthen the band's musicianship, their approach to improvisation, and their ability to draw in and maintain a growing audience. In this episode, we'll hear from Matt Dwyer, RJB, Jonathan Hart, and Brad Tenbrook, former hosts of the Helping Friendly podcast, as they talk about what you can hear in these early shows that helped make Fish what they are today, how the songs developed, and some memorable moments of those early shows. Let's jump in. Building on episode one, what you heard last week, those awesome conversations, we're going to take you through some shows from 83 through 86, and we have a lot we want to tell you about. And I actually, I don't know about you guys, but when I went back and listened to these shows, I was actually like um, maybe more impressed with the music than I have been in the past when I went back and listened to them. And I'm not sure if that's because like hearing the interviews that Tom did made me think about it differently, but there's some really good stuff in these years. I think I put more 
effort into listening to these and listening to the playing and the interplay with the group than I have in a long time. So yeah, I came away impressed. Um, they uh, they really change a lot over this time frame, but it's it's entertaining. I'll be honest, I don't I, I don't do it often, and I haven't for a really long time. Uh, and to spend a good chunk of days, weeks going through these early shows was fun. It's interesting because there's so much that changed even in these few years. One of the first things we wanted to talk about is just like the evolution of the venues these guys were playing in. I mean, if you look from 83 to the end of 86, capacity-wise, I'm, I'm not, I couldn't say definitively, but I'd say that they're, they've increased their audience 10 to 20 fold <laughs> at least right over the course of these three years which seems huge but i guess that's that's the big area of growth i'm curious what what do you guys see as the story of the kind of evolution of these venues there's the first 12283 show and that is it's it's a little hard to listen to but by the time you get to the end of of 86 it's like it sounds like a real band. I don't know if you guys had similar thoughts just listening through and, and thinking about those venues and how those shows evolved. You know, when we look at the venues that they played, for me, in listening to these tapes, the the story is told through the tapes themselves, not necessarily always the music or facts around it. And I think when I listen to them, I hear an evolution in the recordings, which helps us understand the growth into new venues. And I think that's a lot of what we're saying here in terms of, you know, the size of the venues, level of intimacy with their friends there, um, more kind of professional venues versus DIY shows. You know, Jonathan, that was something that, that stuck out to me. You know, for example, when you look back on that first show, we have an incomplete snapshot of it. You know, like I said, probably recorded from a boombox or some sort of low lo-fi device there. Though there actually may, just a side note, we there is probably more to this tape that we've never heard. Kevin Shapiro's notes uh, on the show indicate that they actually have a much more complete recording because he comments on, on some other things that appear in the recording. But it's it's just very you know it's a couple of covers that we have a couple of Grateful Dead covers and it was played at a you know at a cafeteria. Then when you go to eleven three eighty four, it sounds like it's a board tape, but it's like a very saturated cassette recording. It almost sounded to me like an early Grateful Dead tape. So you have an extension, you know, more of a recording, but still that kind of early, not polished, you know, we don't know how they were recording it. Still in that early, just kind of DIY show aesthetic. Twelve one eighty four. we go to Nectar's for the first time. That represents a, what I would call kind of a proper board tape because they would have had a proper PA system there. And you get the, the clearest picture of what early fish sounded like. We're getting closer to having a complete show that's in as good of a quality as we would hear over the next couple of years. Um, and they're actually playing in a real venue, a real bar, presumably with somebody mixing the show. Mm-hmm. 
the next step up is to Hunt's March 4th, 1985. As everybody's described, this is something that came up in pretty much every interview that we conducted for this season. Hunt's was like the place in town, right? This is where nationally touring acts come through. You know, Leo Kotke, for example, was called out as somebody that probably played during uh, that period in Hunt's and Mike, you know, maybe would have gone to see them to that could have inspired their relationship later on. At that point, we get another jump up in tape quality, right? As you listen to these tapes, it sounds like a way more professional venue with a really good PA system um, where they were actually getting a decent, you know, well-separated recording. So it's interesting to me when you listen to some of these kind of like jumps to new places that you may think from a dry soundboard recording that you wouldn't hear the difference, but you absolutely do hear the evolution from this kind of crude early beginning up to like, a band playing in a venue, a real venue with a PA system and monitors and somebody mixing it and somebody making a recording of that that starts them on their path as, as kind of a real band. That is... A great point, and I think the what I hadn't necessarily thought about. I had thought about like crowd size as the venues grow, and not necessarily gear that the venues have, which which is a really important part, right? Like, obviously, the ROTC show in the cafeteria like was was less professionally set up than Nectar's, and maybe that's why Nectar's was so significant that it was like the first place they played that was like, you know, set up for a band. It was. And then, and, and yet you also have Amy Skelton telling us that in those early Nectar's shows, you could be in another part of Nectar's and not listening to Fish, whereas Hunt's is a place where if you were there at that gig, one of those first gigs, you were there to see Fish. That was, or maybe, you know, maybe they were playing with the Lamb's Bread or the Joneses or somebody else, but you were there for the music and you were going to see the music because it was one kind of contained room. Nectar's to me sounds more like American Beauty, R.I.P., RIP in peace to American Beauty, right? Where the, you could different floors and and it sounds the same. But yeah, Hunt's more of like the, the music hall, maybe the Newport RJ in Columbus. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I think Hunt's, Hunt's hasn't been around, right? Because I feel like I went to Burlington and I could only go to Nectar's. Yeah, apparently it became a different venue in the late 80s. And now it is um, the uh, lobby and pool of the Hilton Garden Inn in Burlington. No shit. Oh, yeah. yeah, We got to go. You can still yeah. go inside. The building is still there. It's a, it's a pretty cool looking building. And at least part of it has been repurposed as, as this new hotel. But there's uh, there's no venue there anymore. I tied my shoes right in front of it last time I was in Burlington. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go there and just vibe out in the, in the lobby. <laughs> just feel the, feel the spirits. I, I like that they, they started playing bigger cafeterias later. Um, <laughs> you know, and then, <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's to go from basically their college dorm basements or cafeterias to hunts, to fin bars, to, you know, um, I think Slade is probably a, 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 was a bigger venue for them, you know, in 84 and then upstairs at Nectar's, uh, it seemed like a pretty natural progression to me and, uh, the music follows accordingly maybe. Yeah. Well, we have to talk about that first show, Jonathan, the, because I, I'm asking you because you are the, um, resident Grateful Dead expert. This, <laughs> this first show, I mean, there, there's a lot of stories about this show and we're going to hear a couple of them in a minute, but what did you hear in that first show going back? Well, you know, there's a, a great 
quote that, that might be worth pulling. Trey says, it's not always an exercise in precision, which <laughs> given this band and who they would become, I think that that quote is is really substantial and, and hilarious. Then they play Grateful Dead songs. It's it's nice to hear a lead guitar player who is not a Garcia disciple cover Grateful Dead. Not that I have any problem with the legions of Grateful Dead cover bands out there. I've seen plenty and I, I enjoy it. I think it's interesting. They get about like eight minutes into Scarlet before Trey remembers his envelope filter or starts chopping on his wah pedal like an envelope filter. And it, it's fun. It's a little sloppy. The evolution in venues that you talked about or you started talking about is really about DIY shows. Let's set up our amps and some drums and play a show in a room that is not a venue. It's just a room. And gradually they grow. And by the end of this time frame that we're really talking about, they're playing actual proper music rooms, music halls, um, small ones still, but that's that kind of mirrors their own progression from being just a guys who practice in a dorm room and pretty much just belong in a dorm room to serious a serious rock band. And you you guys everyone's seen the picture from that first gig. It's there's a four there are four piece of course um Fishman Mike, Jeff Holdsworth and Trey and in the photo there's like two people <laughs> And I mean, it's just amazing that that's how it started. And actually, we should just we should just hear from uh, Jeff Holdsworth. It was so awesome that Tom got to talk to him. Here is Jeff Holdsworth remembering that particular show. We definitely, I think we had a gig in mind, and you know, probably this is probably September, October, and I think you know we wanted to throw together enough songs to play. So it was very cover centric to begin with, for sure. And uh, we had this. I'm not so sure if it was Harris Mills and Simpson. It's one of the dining hall things on Redstone campus where we had this ROTC gig that somehow <laughs> lined up. And so I think we barely had two sets of material there, like maybe one and a half, and like, it was so formative. But of course, I guess as the as the story goes down, it was you know kind of ended up everyone just kind of it just sort of fell apart halfway through the the event and kind of just socialized and the band went quiet and just kind of, I do remember that that was kind of a I guess a bummer I mean we didn't really take it hard because like who you know whatever we were just having fun and doing the best we could with two literally two months probably of, of uh you know putting stuff together I want to go just one more just we can leave the first show soon, but, but, but not quite yet. I just, I want to hear, I want everyone to hear what the dude of life had to say about this because he has a, an interesting <laughs> memory um, of that particular show. Well, there's that first uh, ROTC gig and Trey got in that gig. They, they were looking for a band that was doing some dance music. And I think they may have paid Trey up front and got the gig and we showed up and the band started playing Great songs, but not stuff that the ROTC crowd wanted to listen to. They wanted to listen to Michael Jackson and all this kind of disco stuff. And they started playing like Jimi Hendrix and Allman Brothers and Grateful Dead. So they weren't exactly thrilled with the song selection. And that's why eventually they pulled the plug. But I mean, how classic is that, you know? <laughs> Pulling a plug on Fish's first game. So guys, let's jump forward a year because uh, December 1st, 84 is is one of, I think one of the first tapes that I got. And um, there's more Scarlet Fire 
on this, but but they they've they've grown from cafeterias to bigger cafeterias to nectars and upstairs at nectars, which which is is a is a thing that we'll hear about. But this to me sounded like a completely different band from '83. Like they sound kind of impressive. Trey sounds really well rehearsed, and it seems like a completely different band. And that's a year. I mean, I guess a year of playing in a band. Could you could get a lot better, but do you guys feel that way, or what do you think about this uh, jump up to Nectar's? Well, they they sound more like a bar band than a dorm room band, right? Yeah, you know, this was also one of the early tapes that I got, and it was it came to me with that oh fish covering Grateful Dead. It's obviously more than that, but that was my perspective on the day I got the tape. That Scarlet Fire Fire on the Mountain is pretty clever, even if the um, the Hendrix's Fire is tame by later standards. But I really love the intro solo on fire. I like how they kind of, they start to teeter back and forth between the kind of the standard cover band, bar band affair with dead Hendrix Almonds talking heads to uh, Spanish Flea. Like that's, that seems so random, except if you know fish, right? And so the originals are starting to appear. Uh, Skippy, little fluff head. It's a weird show. They played apparently, according to the internet's, that so Fish played forty six shows at Nectar's, which seems like a lot, but also like it, it plays such a bigger role in the lore of Fish than than that many dates. I kind of like imagined that they had played there like once a week for years, you know, but it I, it, it wasn't that long of a period where like Nectar's was the go to. I wonder why that became such a big part of the history and i guess this is like where they sort of became um yeah be, be, yeah became a more legit band as well should we hear amy skelton's kind of take on on nectars and what it was like to when fish kind of graduated to nectars i think the earliest gigs in nectars like the very earliest gigs in nectars weren't um they were not uh, you know drawing fans like those first gigs um there were, as I recall, and I could be wrong on this, I believe the very first Nectar's gigs, my memory's kind of mushed together, but I think the very first ones were upstairs and Nectar's, not downstairs. Like downstairs had the, the nice bar and the restaurant and upstairs there was, I th- think now the space has opened up so that it's the whole space of the building, but then it was only like a, a half a room kind of. So it was a small up da- upstairs space and it was dark and there was no bar up there. They served alcohol from like a table or a cart or something like that, but there was was no bar so it wasn't like if you were coming to nectars to to hang out you would go downstairs where it was a cool place to hang out you wouldn't go upstairs but upstairs i think is where they had their first couple gigs in that in that building and um i you know that was they were rough <laughs> that you know the music was rough it didn't like flow together all the time really well the songs were great the you know and the the laughs were flowing but it wasn't cohesive yet you know like it wasn't they didn't have like a a set yet that's my recollection of the very earliest and then from there i think Doolin's was next and that was like oh you know that's like actually a a, a real <laughs> a real like a real band coming to a real <laughs> concert place you know and, and so that that felt more like concrete like oh wow they're playing out managing to save the spotted stripers multi-beast and thereby cheat his grave i'd like to get his autograph <laughs> but he looks too much like dave ladies and gentlemen dave is with us tonight 
let's hop forward because I, I don't know that much about hunts, but but it seems like based on the the conversations we've heard that hunts was like definitely a step up from nectars, and they only played there eighteen times. But again, like you know, over the course of a couple of years, I guess they were they were starting to grow for sure. And and you've heard people in in episode one talk about the growth and how it was really pretty pretty amazing but again like you know one year later this 10 30 85 show with the first harry hood which is which is important because that song is amazing again they just keep pushing forward and i think at this point if you're like if you're living in burlington and you're starting to see more fish like you must think they're pretty good by now right i was kind of trying to think when i was listening back to this like at what point if you're like a local do you go walk into the show and like walk out being like wow this is a band that's going to go places. I don't think it's the band we heard in 83 and 84, but maybe in 85. I think it's possible. I mean, they're really starting to sound a little more like the band they were going to become versus the band that they had been. Um, not just in material, but that's there. But uh, attitude on stage, uh, they have keys, which they're, they're still, they still have the two guitar attack, like on this 1030 show that we're, you're talking about. Um, and they and they deploy it, I think, reasonably well with uh, like uh, I Wish and Revival and the covers there. And even though they've unleashed the the uh, lyrics to McGrupp, which is I guess still a poem at this time, uh, they they ditch those and they revert back to the Skippy the Wonder Mouse lyrics, which is uh, it's interesting that they teetered back and forth. I don't think I really realized that before going back and doing all this listening. Gentlemen, I'd like to introduce Paul on the soundboard. Let's hear it for Paul. His first joy. His first joy. I didn't realize in at 10:15:86 was the first show where they had Paul again at Hunts, but it seems like they're starting to to add add some people to help improve the sound in '86. Paul joins. That's his first show. Now, the, um, it sounded to me like the first real like fish tape uh, in circulation because it's like basically a complete show, two sets, mostly their own material. They've moved away from the dead covers and almond covers and things like that. There's still a lot of the songs that are hallmarks of the early shows that went away later, like Claude, Anarchy, Roll Like a Cantaloupe. Lifted in your arms. In terms of venues, I just wanted to bring up 103186, which was a co-bill with the Joneses. And um, we, you heard about the Joneses in episode one, but this is Goddard College. So I think they played once there in 85 and they start to play there as this kind of migration, you know, happens and they start going between Goddard and, and, and Burlington. And I think, you know, the sculpture room, I mean, I, I haven't been in a lot of sculpture rooms, but I feel like <laughs> they're probably not huge. Um, but this to me is sort of like indicative of their just wanting to have like, you know, it was probably a pretty crazy party. 
you know? And I, I feel like right. the Nectar shows and the bar shows are all giving them a little bit more more momentum and more energy. And then they can go and just have like a pretty sweet party in a, you know, at a pretty wild college from, from what I understand. And there's some really good stuff in this, uh, in this Halloween 86 show. I'm very interested, RJ, in the, what you brought up, the bar band culture versus the college, like dorm room, cafeteria, sculpture room culture. Do you know that? I, I think those are two separate entities. Maybe the maybe the fans followed them wherever they went. Like at Ohio State, RJ, you and I, we we saw some you know cover jam bands and in, in some d- dingy bars. Um, I would not follow those people to like a, a sculpture room <laughs> within the campus. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. I want to be somewhere where they're serving beers and and we can sit at a table and talk. Yeah. If if, if they're not, so uh, it's it's just interesting um, to think about. They played the sculpture room three times, 86, 87, and 88, all around the same time. Two of them were Halloween and one of them was um, October 29th. So feels like it was like, I mean, I don't know anything about what was happening on that night, but it feels like it was like a, like an acid test kind of vibe, you know, especially because they played with the Joneses. So, and Fish plays two sets, assuming the Joneses play two sets. That's like, it's a long night of music on Halloween night. The, the poster's super psychedelic. I assume it was like a pretty cool party but kind of getting in deeper with their fans i guess is 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 the way i see it without really knowing that yeah i mean these kinds of party shows can engender a deeper connection with an audience you know mm. when you're in a even in a a bar with a low stage you're still up on a stage you're playing in the sculpture room is there a stage in the sculpture room maybe maybe there is yeah, I mean the sculptures—they get their own little little podiums, right? But the band doesn't. They're they're off just in one end of a room. This has a little more of a DIY feel, most likely. But the uh, the material is this late '86 fish band that is really congealed over the course of the several years. You know, they they literally you know grew right together, cast off a couple bits, you know, uh, extra percussionist, the second guitar player brought in a keyboard player, started Trey's come into his own as a composer and if you look at the song list, you see a lot of that in here. The covers have shifted a bit, uh but not completely. You know, they're still playing Mustang Sally, but but now they're they're playing like Swing Low Sweet Chariot, which kind of points to the jazz stuff that I think will become more important to the band over the next couple of years and uh oh uh david bowie yeah uh, they, this is it they play they play david bowie is this the first one it's funny because on Fishnet, it's, it's called the first known version and not a debut, which I think is an interesting distinction, but it, it sure. seems like the debut and it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good version. Um, kind of intense, you know, for, for, a for an 86 jam. There's quite a few missing set lists from that era. I think it's actually a really good distinction. Having heard it, I would actually be surprised if it really was the first version of David Bowie because it does sound like they've they've played it on stage before to me at least when we return we'll hear the guys talk more about fish's evolving sound in the early 80s
Okay, everybody, welcome to Songs and Slopes, brought to you by Upslope Brewing. This is a new segment where we'll be recommending music for you to check out and pairing it with an Upslope beverage. This week, since we're discussing music from 1983 to 1986, we thought it would be fun to pair an album from that time with an Upslope beverage. I'm going to start. I picked the Juniper in Lime Spiked Snow Melt as my beverage of choice. Upslope's Hard Seltzer is one of my favorites, and I've tried most of them out there. I've paired this with the album Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. Brothers in Arms was one of the first albums fully recorded, mixed, and mastered digitally. When it came out in 1985, it was praised for its super crisp, clear sound, which demonstrated the clean sound, increased dynamic range, and longer capacity of the CD. The Juniper and Lime Snowmelt is so smooth and crisp that it's the perfect match for this album. The Lime Forward Seltzer taste beckons you in like the hit singles from this album, and the Juniper finish reminds you that there's so much more depth to it than just the MTV hits. You might say that the lime essence is the walk of life of this seltzer, and the juniper is like the rich, deep cuts such as Why Worry, Your Latest Trick, Ride Across the River, or the mind-blowing title track. So that's what I've got. Brad, how about you? So I chose Upslope's India Pale Ale for my beer. It's described on the can as bold, deep, bitter. I think it fits really well with my album, that I wanted to listen to. Uh, It's from 1983. It's their self-titled first release from the Violent Femmes. It's got a bunch of great classics on it. They they stand the test of time, as as does this upslope traditional IPA. It's bold, it's deep, it's bitter. It's got that malty taste. It's got that amber hue. All things I look for in a traditional IPA. Upslope's got it in this one. All things I look for in an alternative rock album from 1983 are contained on Violent Femmes' self-titled release. They're both classics. Uh, They both draw from previous influences. Both took a while to catch on. Violent Femmes' album didn't go platinum until I think it was eight or nine years old. IPAs have been around forever, uh, but just the past 10, maybe 15 years, they've really exploded. Upslope does a great job of pulling from a traditional IPA and making a really good one. It fits the album well. Hope everybody enjoys both at the same time. All right, Jonathan, what do you have? Last night, I paired Upslope's Oatmeal Stout with U2's 1984 classic The Unforgettable Fire. The now legendary Irish band was already finding greatness while yet on the cusp of mega stardom. And when I think of Ireland, I think about drinking a good stout. Upslope's Oatmeal Stout is brewed with oats, roasted malts, and East Kent Golding hops, so it packs a full traditional stout flavor and body into a great session ale. What about you, RJ? Great pick, Jonathan. I'm going to close it out with my pick, which is The Talking Heads Speaking in Tongues from 1983. I think everyone knows this album. It starts out with Burning Down the House, and it ends with my favorite song of all time, This Must Be the Place. And I have to say, it pairs really well with the upslope Rocky Mountain Kolsch. That Kolsch is sweet, it's crisp, it's refreshing, it has some bright citrus tones, a little bit of hops, and uh, it's just really easy to drink, and this album to me is really easy to listen to. So that's that's what you get from us this week. Enjoy those drinks, enjoy those albums, and we're going to be back with more music recommendations and upslope recommendations. So thanks, we'll see you soon. Let's get back to the guys talking about the evolution of these early songs and about the stage presence of the band in those years. So guys, let's talk about the songs because the songs that we hear starting in 83 and and ending in 86 are pretty different. You hear a lot more originals 
and fewer covers, maybe fewer like bar cover songs. <laughs> it's probably slightly more complicated than that. Jonathan, what what did you hear as you kind of like go through these shows and, and look at these songs that, that are played over this period of time? You know, even in some of the earlier shows, you have things like Harry Hood, Skippy the Wonder Mouse, which becomes McGrupp, um, uh, a portion of Fluffhead, but they're they're rough, but they contain you know kernels of Trey's composition. He's like the way his brain works and assembles a song is obviously there, and he has to grow in comfort, both comfort with this group and just grow as a writer over these years. And he really makes significant leaps, you know, in the middle of this time frame. Harry Hood really takes shape and it starts to sound like fish it's start you start to hear you know uh the blissful sort of jam and laden harry hood that defines that song Even, even some of the covers by the end of this time frame in late 86, they start to sound like fish. Skin It Back, I think, is one of the ones, I think, in 1015, 86, 1015, 86, Skin It Back, it sounds like fish playing Skin It Back, which I, I saw somebody not too long ago, uh, John Cadlasek, I think, said that fish is like the child of Genesis and Little Feet, which I think is kind of an interesting notion, and it's not totally crazy. Also in 86, the Help Slip ACDC bag. That's Help on the Way into Slipknot into ACDC bag, just like Jerry would have done. Um, Can you imagine if that happened in 2021 and 4.0 <laughs> 4 fish, as, as the right. kids are saying? Yes, I, mean, I, I can imagine. I will imagine. <laughs> I will dream. No, I Maybe mean, I, inspired I don't... By this. I have no expectation of ever seeing something like that, but they really, they actually really jammed Slipknot. I mean, the dead didn't even jam Slipknot that many times. So to hear fish do it and do it justice is, is really cool. I, I really like the way that every time they did McGrupp in this time frame, at least every time that we have recordings of, Trey seems to do the poem the narration, whatever you want to call it, a little differently. Like he he has just a different way of attacking it, different way of phrasing it, different kind of, I don't know, joke in his mind as he does all the lines. You know, obviously there's a lot of room to develop uh, ahead of them. The jams are like trying to get through, you know, that's the way I like listen to it in these shows. And you were sort of saying this, Jonathan, but, you know, like you have the, you have whipping posts and you have you know, cities, you have these covers that, that they start with that where you hear some improv and then for a period of time, like McGrupp is the jam vehicle, you know? And then like McGrupp is like the song of 85.
It's it's a weird and quirky little composition, and it's impressive that they could kind of stretch it a little. You mentioned Whipping Post, which I didn't mention before. I'd also like to argue that there's at least one show that makes a case that they shred the other one a little more than they do Whipping Post. And that's another thing that I, I, I don't expect to ever see it here, but uh, Fish played the other one and did some justice to it. It's pretty cool. There's a lot of there's a lot of Grateful Dead in this period, which is which is Jobless. interesting. <laughs> but then but then you start to see Slave and you start to see Hood and but like Hood from the very beginning is just a beautiful jam that comes out of it. Like it, you know, there like you you mentioned earlier Brad, it's not they're not long, but they, that's where like the energy starts to go toward the the new compositions. And I would just note that that's still how it is today, right? Like you get you know, Blazon was the jam vehicle the year it was it was first played, and then Mercury and mm-hmm. you know Ruby Waves in in 2019. The new material drives the improv. But Matt, you've been in bands. Is that just generally how bands work? Like, does new material always push improv forward, or is Fish kind of a, a special case in that? Depends on the material. A counterpoint to that is that it took them a very long time to figure out what they could do with Down with Disease. You know, and they played it at almost every show when the when the album True. came out. I think you know when I look back on this stuff. First off, I agree on Skippy the Wonder Mouse from McGrupp. That seems to be the the first or the one of the first songs that would stick. Original songs that would stick. Um, and I think it's interesting because that could have been something that was like an outlier in their sound. But to me, McGrupp has always been one of those songs that really sounds like Fish. It's a very fishy song, and there's not many other bands making songs that sound like that. So I think it's kind of interesting that they had that. We talk a lot about uh, them moving away from the dead and the almond stuff, the jammy stuff early on into different sounds. The dead and almond stuff that they played early on doesn't sound indicative of what fish would become to me at all. Um, Where I start to hear in terms of covers uh, elements of fish that will stick or come in later is actually on more of like the R&B tunes that they played. You know, Midnight Hour and Mustang Sally and stuff like that, which is stuff that they would eventually move away from as well. But I think it it speaks more to Fish being a dancey band and being like a bar band that's there to entertain people and help people dance and get by. A big part of that is John Fishman's drumming. You know, I mentioned Mike being kind of the standout on the first show, the second tape ever is uh, uh, November 3rd, 1984. And what I hear there is Fishman. Um, now, this is almost a year later after the first tape. Um, we have heard a lot of stories about Fishman being relentless in his drum practicing uh, in his dorm, bothering a lot of people. It, but you can tell because he is really driving the groove on a lot of this early R&B stuff. And I think that's well, it may not sound exactly like Fish today or in the 90s. It's definitely the ethos is there to get some butts moving, uh, to get people dancing and having a good time and not just kind of standing there listening to very heady jams. The, the interesting thing is that the crowd, there was a, people who would say, oh, when I started getting into fish, people would say, oh, they don't like the Grateful Dead. They're nothing like the Grateful Dead. Don't even talk about Grateful Dead. 
And I would say, well, sure, they're very different, but I like both. Um, it's interesting to learn how much they did draw, not just musically, because it's not entirely musical. It's it's spiritual, and it's also who they hung out with when they were young and when they were starting and who came to their shows when they first launched this thing. The May 3rd, 85 show, because I think it's a pretty sweet little nugget of where the sh where the songs were at that point. You know, the, it's a it's an incomplete recording, but set one's got a Mike's song and then a Dave's energy guide, which are completely unique and they sound great and it's really cool. And then uh, set three, as it's listed, is a Scarlet and an Eyes, uh, a Whipping Post into McGrupp, a Maka Supa Policeman, an Antelope, and then another one, or the other one, which, you know, Jonathan mentioned that they really jam. I, I think that kind of sums up the era a little bit. Scarlet and Eyes, they played really well. The Whipping Post, I think Mike makes it sound exactly like the Almond Brothers. A McGrupp is theirs, you know, all the Makasupa, maybe that's their time with Lamb's Bread and all that. Um, but again, it's an original, like Mike's song and, and Dave's Energy Guide. So they're they're less than two years old at this point, and they're not just a bar band. You know what I mean? I think that show this show shows that. Can we just talk quickly about the the goofiness? Because in terms of songs and in terms of fishes identity it really was baked in from the beginning like there was no you know we heard this in episode one from a few of the interviewees there was no like taking yourself too seriously but it, it's not like they added the humorous stuff later as they got more comfortable and and more you know well known they were doing really goofy shit from the beginning and song wise you see it i mean I, i'm almost from the very beginning but i feel like actually it starts to become more prominent as you get into 86 like you're hearing just there's so much to talk about in terms of the goofiness not just like the songs but just the the antics the banter it's the humor is baked in from the beginning and and i guess it's obvious because it's true that they it seems like as people they all kind of have that and i think holdsworth didn't probably have that as much <laughs> but it seems like a real common bond from the beginning I think it's it's right there from the the very first show, literally. You know, it's not on the tape, but Kevin Shapiro's notes include, you know, there's the famous story about the the ROTC folks trying to drown out the band with Michael Jackson. Well, apparently when they came back on, they started playing like beat it, you know what I mean, and like teasing and kind of making fun of them. You know, I, when I think about this, like there's a lot of the same people probably that were going to all of these shows. And just like we see today, there's a certain elevation of the humor and insideness to the communication that can happen when you have the same people following along every night, whether it's the Beacon Jams and Trey can keep making spatchcock jokes, which somebody tuning in the last week of the Beacon Jam will be like, what the hell are they talking about? But if you've been watching along the whole time, you get the depth of the joke. Same thing if you've got the same people coming to see you at bars and, you know, your friend's living room or, your, or, or outside in their, their side yard every gig for years you're in, you're going to kind of develop a shorthand with the audience and you're going to be able to have this level of humor that somebody coming to a show is not not going to get and we see that throughout the entire history of fish including them basically trying to punk newcomers with the secret language you know a few years later so it's it was absolutely there from from day 1 it really was but it, i feel 
like RJ suggests, that it, it moves further into the four as Trey does. So when they, at the first show, Jeff was, I think somebody, somewhere I read, that they played songs that Jeff knew because those are the songs that they could do. And as Trey developed his capacity to be the guy in front, I mean, he always had the charisma, I think, but the comfort of being up front in the band, it came out more. Sanity never came my way. Sanity never came my way. I don't know what I'll do today. Cause sanity never came my way. In these early fish shows, you can hear the band's sound evolve as they matured. The band explored where they could take music and their identity and spent the 80s figuring out their show structure, finding creative ways to make a cohesive show full of great music along with some humor. And as the band became more popular, Fish was able to spend more time playing together. Sometimes the band would lock themselves in a room in the spirit of Native American Okipa ceremonies as endurance tests in listening, in exploring improvisation, and as a method to help them connect on levels of consciousness that go further than the typical college band. That's because from the beginning, Fish's compositions and early shows were always more than that. They were purely new, a fresh concept of what live music should be, a marriage of complex compositions, fun geeky humor, fantasy world building, and a critical focus on fan engagement. And today, Fish is sacred art to many people, a place to gather and learn new lessons of music and life, and then unlearn them. So how did Fish's sound start to evolve in those early years? In terms of this early sound that we've talked about with both the, the venues and the tapes and what we hear in terms of evolution, to you, do, what do you think it was that allowed them to, to kind of continue to grow during this period sound-wise? It's a good question. And it's one that I've actually thought about a lot, and I don't know that any of us have an answer to it. And, and it's interesting after talking to so many people who are around the band at that point that nobody really answered that question. But the evidence that we have, I think, seems to indicate that they were just in very impressively talented musicians. They were relentless about practicing and improving um, their craft. And I think by this point, you know, by 86 or so, you start to see the degree to which they were taking it seriously because, you know, we talked about Paul joining as a, you know, front of house mixer and they've got potentially this roadie, Del Martin. There's, there's more of an organization around it. You can almost look at Jeff's departure from the band as the moment where there was this us and them. And what he described is there wasn't like a specific conversation of like, oh, you guys are taking it more seriously or I want to do this. There's this story that floats around uh, and has for years that like Jeff didn't like playing songs like Yam or that Jeff heard heard Yam and was like, that's not like, that's too complicated for me. And, and I think what he basically described was there was this natural logical. He was like, hey, like I'm, I'm older than you guys. I graduated. I'm split in town. Like I've, I, I got my electrical engineering degree. I'm going to go do this. And he just kind of like went off and they were like, okay, cool. We'll just keep playing um, because that's just where they were at. But you can look at that as the moment where it's like they start to double down on all of this stuff and, and taking it super, super seriously.
I tend to agree with what you're saying there. I think it would be unkind, unfair, and inaccurate to say anything about Jeff holding them back. But I, I think what we know now is that he wasn't out. He wasn't planning to make music his life, and so when he stepped out of the band, the rest of the band just kept going. And they were already very serious, and they just continued to be serious. They became maybe slightly more agile. Their sound clearly changed. Yeah, they they kept pushing. I think that they worked very hard, not specifically with the goal to build the critical mass, but with the result of building themselves a bit of a critical mass in their community. And that paid off very soon after, I think. Well, so sound-wise, we can't go forward without talking about this two-guitar band, you know, versus the band with with keys. Maybe we can just kick off this brief discussion with a quote from Holdsworth, because I'm sure we'll have things to say about it. When you have two guitars, they're very mid-rangey instruments. They kind of compete with each other sonically. So if you have too much guitar, there's not really enough space. So I have to say, my my leaving the band probably opened I mean, definitely did open up a lot of sonic room for Trey to experiment. You know, you gotta have something keeping it all together. So having the keyboards as the glue between the, the rhythm section and, and that empty space there, it works. And obviously it's worked. And um, sonically, I think it's more pleasing in some ways. So, you know, so I, I, you know, maybe that's false humility or maybe true humility for me to say. So Matt, what you're saying about, you know, Obviously, Jeff was heading in a different direction life-wise, and I thought it was interesting that he talked about kind of going to visiting different kind of like communes, as he described them, and then ended up finding Christianity, because I don't usually put those two things together, although maybe they're more related than I think. But there, there's, a, there's a sound evolution that happened between the two guitars and then the, the keyboards. It's hard for me to imagine two guitars and Paige, you know, in 2019 Fish, but... Um, I don't know. Do you guys like, can you hear it in these shows that we listen to? Like, can you hear the sound evolve to the point where it's like, oh yeah, this, this band is actually better or this band makes way more sense. Not necessarily once Holdsworth is gone, but once Paige is part of it. Well, I think when Paige joins from the very beginning on 5385, you can, it's a good example, a good way to, uh, to check it out. So you have uh, a two guitar attack on Mike's song, which is my first thought was, you know, do we need two guitars? And I think that's as much because I'm not used to hearing two guitars on it as anything else. But a little bit later when Paige sits in, they really have a full sound and they have that, Carlos Santana has this, there's this quote from him. He's, he describes a large band as a comfy sofa that the lead guitar player can sit back on and jam. This is that sofa. It's definitely, there's a thick sound that Trey can solo over, and there's things to be said about it. I I spoke earlier about the two guitar attack on some of the covers, and you hear it on the other one and the whipping post, and it's pleasant, but is it necessary? Paige really does fill that space. As uh, Jeff says, the connection between the rhythm section and the melodic uh, he fills that space and does a bit more because he's got 10 fingers playing notes. So it's it's a very different thing. And uh, I, I like it. I think it worked well and, and uh, paid off for the band. 
both of those events being significant contributors to the fish sound are 100% true. Both adding page and the, what he brought in terms of texture, uh, right? You're absolutely right, Jonathan, right from, from the first gig, 5385, where he was just sitting in. He adds so much to the band's sound. Conversely, Jeff leaving, I think Jeff was absolutely right in his own critical assessment of that, that it opened up more space for Trey to play. The interesting thing being, as we learned from Billy Ross Messler, was that it was Trey who wanted it to be a two-guitar band and initially kind of didn't want Paige to join the band. He always had envisioned this as a two-guitar kind of thing, but it seems like once he let go of that, uh, I think maybe kind of having Paige up here there, maybe it was he was more willing to let go of it because Paige is a great foil for Trey to kind of fill in some of those spaces around him. I can't imagine Fish having been as successful in crafting a lot of the improv that they did and a lot of the things that they did in the 90s if they had continued with two guitars, regardless of whether or not there was a keyboardist in the band. Sound-wise, I mean, I still like, like you said, Matt, no one's answered that question. I don't have an answer to it. It's like, you know, by the end of 86, they're still at Goddard College. They're playing in Burlington. It's not like they've they've hit the, the main um, mainstream to any, to any extent, but it's incredible that this momentum keeps building. And I guess to go to like a very, very, you know, tired cliche, like they, they stayed true to themselves, you know, they're the humor, the complex compositions, the like relentless, you know, dedication to it. It's just interesting that that is staying true to themselves and not trying to become what was happening. Cause we haven't talked at all about the fact that in the mid eighties, popular music was very, very different from what Fish was doing, right? Like they could have altered their sound even slightly and probably, you know, become popular based on how talented they were, but they they weren't going to do that. It reminds me of The Dead in that way too, that like The Dead was never going to be what people wanted them to be. They were going to be what they were and that it's one of the things that allowed them to thrive. I think that's, to me, that's one of the bigger similarities between the two bands. They've never really fit in with with what's going on in the the music scene. Maybe f- maybe for like a a brief moment in the mid nineties, but <laughs> down with disease video. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were, that's <laughs> that like it. they were on yeah. Beavis and Butthead. They were they were you know yeah. in the zeitgeist enough to be made fun of. Looking back at this initial four-year period of Fish, what are some takeaways from these shows? We know that Jeff Holdsworth was crucial in forming the band's initial musical identity and path, and that the early 80s were a time of intensive practice and deep devotion to a dream of music that was unconventional, intimate, and curious. The band developed a rhythm to their live shows. They were friends having fun, playing music, allowing their humor and wit to exude from each note. We, personally, learned a lot from delving deep into Fish's early shows from 1983 to 1986. We were able to take a step back to look differently at this band 
especially during this unusual time of COVID with no live music, we found ourselves further invested in these early shows and were reminded of the importance of Vermont, of Burlington, of those early venues and gigs. People started showing up and then more people showed up. And to this day, people are still showing up. We know that when Fish comes back, there's going to be more people than ever lining up to see the band. And when we do see them, we know that they'll be doing what they were doing then, pushing themselves to create a unique experience at every show, living in the moment and allowing the present to dictate their inspiration and never taking themselves too seriously to pass up a good joke. Our listeners have heard us talk about these shows and, and going back, but we've actually listened to a lot of music in preparation, um, which which may be obvious, but but I just want to give ourselves credit for listening to a lot of fish because it's it's very hard. <laughs> what do you guys see as the biggest kind of milestones or the things that that people should go back to during this this four year period? What are like the a couple kind of key moments for you? I think I already mentioned the one end of the year celebration at the University of Vermont where they bring him on and they say Paige from Goddard in the second set or the third set. It's a huge it's a huge deal. The other one would be that. 101586 show which we get a, a ton of music from uh it's a hunt show it's three sets to me that is out of all these shows the first one that sounds like the fish we know today or at least you know it's getting there because it's got some true originals uh, with the covers so You know, I agree with those completely, and they're on my list. I think also uh, the advent of You Enjoy Myself and the first shows without Jeff uh, would kind of come right in between those things that uh, that Brad mentioned. I think those are pretty important moments. Bringing in that composition of You Enjoy Myself is, it's immense. It's it's so it's actually so different from even all the other things they're playing at that time. And then we, there we have songs like Slave and Hood, uh, Skippy or McGrupp, depending on what night that is. And uh, Fish, as Trey has said, this is this song is very much what Fish is. And, you know, that it comes right out of this time. I agree with those. I would add that the first gig is worth listening to for what it is. We don't have a recording of the first show at Hunt's, uh, which by all accounts was a very, very significant step up for them and very exciting for all uh, involved. We do have the second show at Hunt's, which is the next show in sequence, which was two nights later on March 4th, 1985. Um, That's a a really important one to listen to because I think it you start to get a, the the clearest picture uh, from a sound quality perspective of what they sounded like. I would just call out again, 101586 uh, seems to be the start of something new. It was a deliberate ch- decision that we made to end this discussion after 1986. And I think 
10, 15, 86 points to why we why we're going to look at 87 and 88 next because um, it's kind of the, the beginning of a next phase. I just want to point to the 12184 show. We talked about the the dead covers. Um, to me, what stood out the most was the transition and the segue between Don't Want You No More, which is a Spencer Davis group song, into Cities. Just perfect segue. And I, I just think that like speaks to the level of practice that, that these guys were, you know, doing. I mean, to get a full band to transition from one song to another, like, I don't know. I've never done it, but it seems hard. The other thing I would say it, for me, I mean, Harry Hood's my, my favorite song. The debut of Harry Hood, 103085, which we mentioned earlier, it's just like, it's really, it's an, first of all, it's an opener, which, you know, hasn't happened that much. And um, there's, there's some stuff, you know, there's a little bit missing, but it's kind of in, it's kind of a full Harry Hood and, and that, that three chord jam at the end, it's just, it was, it was blissful from the beginning, you know, I think that's really cool. And, um, I, I love that. So guys, as we, as we wrap up this discussion and Matt just reference, we're going to, we're going to move forward into, into the future years next time. Any, uh, key takeaway for you guys, um, from from going back to these shows one of the reasons i pointed out that the first gig 12283 should be listened to these tapes specifically from 83 to 86 should be played for anybody who wants to make it who is in a, a new band as evidence of where you have to start out and i think there's this and i i'm guilty of it in my own you know, musical uh, education and stuff when I was growing up. I mean, you just see a, a great band and you just assume they're talented and they got together and they started playing and it was great. And, you know, the the first the first show, it's not great. It's better than a lot of bands are when they start out, but it's their, their vocals are very shaky and tentative. You can tell they're nervous playing on stage. And these guys had played in bands before, but it's evidence as you listen to these tapes that like if you keep working hard and, and if you're going to be good, you're going to have to work hard. Magic doesn't happen even for a band like Fish. So I think that's that was the number one thing. Anytime I go back to the 80s, it, that kind of sticks in my mind. And I, I guess the other thing that, that I was reminded of is how much their influences were worn on their sleeves at this point. You know, there's a lot more of the R&B stuff. And I don't know, necessarily know that that's completely Jeff's influence because, you know, he talked about a lot about being into like rock, Molly Hatchet and Leonard Skinner and stuff like that. Everything that they were kind of like representing the dead, the almonds, this these R&B tunes to get people dancing and stuff. It was all in the mix at that point. They kind of finally, you know, chiseled away at that to get to their unique sound um so i think that's probably another message for young bands is you know start out with what you know and what you're into but use that as a as a gateway to get to your own voice my takeaways were similar to that but also one of the things is that my appreciation for jeff holdsworth really grew immensely listening to these shows he actually coming into this had some chops some expertise uh, a decent voice and you know some songs that got them started and then the band grew together trey had room to kind of knuckle into his instrument develop his tool set as a band leader mike came in far more prepared than i really remembered from my years ago listening to this early material fish he's always been amazing but he's always continued to grow their hard work is evident in these years obviously years later as well but it's really it's really great to listen to i also now feel fully prepared to spot the first 4.0 dave's energy guide tease 
And I'm I'm additionally ready for fish to bring back Lushington. You guys all summed it up perfectly. So I want to end with a quote from one of the members of the Joneses who you heard from in episode one and Tom got to talk to. Just the evolution as band was, you know, impressive in these years, as we've talked about throughout this episode. The Joneses were this band that was playing with Fish and, and hanging out with them. And um, I thought this this little nugget from, uh, <laughs> from them was really uh, kind of a good summary of what happened at that time. So we're going to leave you with this and... We're going to see you guys back here really soon, and I uh, hope you're enjoying Undermine. We'll see you all soon. I remember like seeing those guys play in um, the Billing Center at, at UVM after they'd, they'd gone and begun to kind of you know cultivate their, their audience a little bit. And, you know, when, when they were first around Burlington, I mean, they were a little rough around the edges and, and the music was sometimes, a, you know, it, it would almost train wreck but pull itself out. And, and then they came back and they played this gig at Billings and the word was out. I mean, because the place was just packed and they just were like mind blowing. And, and at that point, I think anyone who saw that show was kind of like, ah, OK, now I see where these guys are going. Thanks for joining us on our voyage into these earliest shows. In the next episode of Undermine, we'll be hearing from Dave Goldstein and Brian Brinkman, who will take a look at the David Bowie from August 29th, 1987, which was a three-set show at the ranch in South Burlington. We'll also be looking at four other bands who came of age in the 1980s, as well as the larger scenes they created and grew into, and their lasting legacies. By understanding the paths of the bands R.E.M., Yola Tango, Minutemen, and Husker Du, we will better understand what paved the way for Fish to become one of the biggest bands of the last 40 years. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Co-hosted by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, and Brad Tenbrook. Writing and production assistance from Noah Eckstein. Production assistance from Christina Collins and Don Jenkins. Original music by Amar Sastry. Art by Mark Dowd. A special thank you to all of our interviewees. And please, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at UnderminePod. And if you love Undermine, subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. 
As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street.